You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Have you ever had that thing happen to you where you're in a public place and you see a person you barely know, but you recognize and they recognize you? It's often people from school that I see at the mall or at a restaurant, and I find myself worried about whether they saw me. Or, in the worst scenario, we make eye contact. And then we both know that we saw each other and we actually have to acknowledge that we saw each other. Until very recently, I thought the best way to handle this situation was, unless we're friends, I don't acknowledge them, and they don't acknowledge me. Kind of a mutual ignoring. Recently, though, this changed a little bit. Last Saturday, from 8.30 a.m. until 11 o'clock Sunday morning, I participated in the annual Minnesota Youth Con, a convention of UU youth from all over Minnesota. We had a whole bunch of kids from First U here and Unity, kids from White Bear and Wyzetta and First Unitarian Society in downtown, and other churches in various suburbs. There were kids from all over, some of whom I was really good friends with and have known for years, others who I'd seen maybe once or twice before, and others who I had just met that day. I was excited about the con, but I was somewhat worried about that middle group, my semi-acquaintances. One of those semi-acquaintances was this kid named Zach. He goes here to First Universalist, and he's a freshman at Washburn, which is my school. I probably wouldn't have met him at school, but he's on the ski team, and I've seen him at pasta parties and at races. But I wasn't able to really connect with him because I was injured and I couldn't ski. Zach ended up being in my small group, and at first I thought, oh shoot, I'm gonna have to actually interact with him. Here's my issue. I don't have a problem meeting new people, and I love hanging out with old friends. But when I'm around someone that I've seen once or twice before, I get nervous. I'm still figuring out why. So we get into small groups, and this time, since I was actually forced to get to know Zach, I decided I was just going to go for it. We ended up talking a lot, and he's actually kind of cool, which I didn't expect from a freshman. We even paired up for the late night one-on-one deep talk that's a signature of the con, and I got to know him and his life a little better. What I'm trying to get at is this. The number of people who I actually know is such a minuscule fraction of the world, or even of Minneapolis. And just because you haven't met somebody doesn't mean you can't. So if you have the opportunity, just go for it. It's not like you're going on a date or anything. Although you might later, I don't know. (laughs) Come, let us worship together. Good morning, everyone. So I'm going to start off with some gratitude. I'm going to share with you a little bit about Shirtikva's history. I'm going to try and teach a little Torah, talk about co-location, and make sure I'm done in 11 minutes. So... 
thank you. It's really, it's a joy and an honor to be with you this morning, and I want to extend my deepest gratitude to your pastors, um, who are beloved friends and true and inspiration to um, Pastors Crow and Schroeder, Mackenzie Hutt, and Aaron Tenbrink, um, all of whom um, I admire so greatly, and I hope you all realize how unbelievably blessed you are to have these leaders. Um, they're not simply brilliant and decent and beautiful colleagues, which they are, but after the shooting at Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh last October, they were the first people to show up and to stand with us at Shirtikva and with the Jewish community of the Twin Cities. It would have been really easy for them, for you, to run away from the pain, to be legitimately afraid. And instead, they ran toward us, arms wide open, hearts overflowing with love. Uh, our board chair, Bruce Manning, was here at the early service this morning. And so on behalf of all of us, I want to thank you um, with deepest gratitude from all of us at Shirtikva. I also want to thank um, several of your leaders. I saw Eric and Nancy and Cynthia and a lot of folks who I've gotten to know working on co-location. Um, not only is, are your pastors and your staff great, but the leaders you have selected to lead this congregation are really um, wise, humble, funny, hardworking, dedicated, and seem to have the ability to produce meetings and emails at a volume I have never <laughs> seen in my life. And so um, you are wise to keep electing them. It's nice to have, it's nice for Shirtikvin First Jew to have presidents we love and adore, isn't it? Um, so, a very brief history uh, about Shirtikva, for those of you who don't know. We were founded in 1988 as a home for progressive Jews who believed in serious Jewish study, soulful worship, deep community engagement, and lived justice. For our first six years, we met at the St. Paul JCC. Our original eight families, in fact, met at Green Mill Pizza where the first official board meeting was, and I don't want to know what they ate on their pizza. So um, we met for six years at the St. Paul J, and then in 1994, we bought our home on Minnehaha Parkway from you all and have lived there for what will be a quarter century this summer. In the past 30 and a half years, we're like finally 30-something, we have grown from those original eight families to 540 households which is around 800 or so adult members, and we continue to strive to live at the intersection of spirituality and justice, to marry the work, the soul work of our sanctuary with our soul work on the streets. As a community, we have worked over the past 30 years to help settle some Somali refugee families. We continue to partner in dialogue with the Muslim community which, just as a side note, to be synagogues and uh, mosques together in 2019, it should be a lot easier, and it's hard work. We challenge the ballot amendment that would have restricted the right to vote. We, like you, serve as a sanctuary immigrant justice congregation. We helped with you to lead the way to marriage equality in Minnesota. We are currently engaged in a campaign against gun violence led by our youth. Adults, we should listen to them and get out of their way. And we partner with Jewish Community Action, which is kind of like the Jewish people's Isaiah, to restore the vote as we try and also care for the earth and reduce the impact of climate change. 
Five years ago, we made a substantive commitment to racial justice. It's one of our three congregational priorities, and it now infuses much of who we are and what we do, from our social justice work to our Jewish education. Not a lot of books produced by synagogues over the last 100 years that actually have Jews of color in them. Um, we're working on it. To our worship life, we are striving, striving to build a beloved and a brave community that seeks justice and equity and human dignity. And we are deeply, deeply grateful to be your partner in so much of this inspiring and agonizing and holy work. You have taught us a great deal, and I hope in turn we can share some of what we learn with you all. So a little Torah. Each week, Jews read a section of the Torah. This week, we are in the book of Exodus, which is the second book. The Israelites are newly freed, and we find ourselves in the desert. So just like, take a moment, think about being in the desert. <laughs> I often wonder how my people made it to Minnesota, but that's a different sermon. <laughs> We're in the desert awaiting God's instruction for what's next. And we must try and figure out what we're going to do. You see, it turns out that freedom isn't so easy. God calls Moses, Moshe, up to the mountain to commune for 40 days. Now, as a little parenthetical sign note, I admit I'm breaking one of the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to tell you how jealous I am. 40 days of quiet. No carpools, no whining, no complaining, no dishes, no tweets, no laundry. <laughs> Sounds, for lack of a better term, divine. But the experience of the newly freed Israelites at the base of the mountain, those who felt left behind, was anything but fabulous. They were frightened, terrified, really. You see, Egypt was bad. Slavery was bad. But the structures and the systems of Egypt were all gone. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to be all nostalgic or try and glorify for the Israelites the unpaid labor, the inability to worship God, the constant beatings. But the text itself tells us that the Israelites were complaining because they knew what to expect in Egypt. They knew where their food was coming from. They knew who was in charge, which taskmasters to avoid. They understood how things worked. It made sense to them, even though it was immoral and unjust. Freedom was terrifying. And now Moshe, their trusted leader who spoke to them on God's behalf, was gone from their midst, and the people's anxiety grew exponentially. We read in Torah, Vayar ha'am ki voshesh Moshe laredet min ha'har, vayakel ha'am el aharon. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered against Aaron, Moses' brother, who had been left in charge. And they said, come, make us a God who we can worship. Because that guy Moses, that man Moses, who brought us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Lo yodanu mahayalo. We don't know what happened to him. So in that 40-day sojourn, when Moses communed up the mountain, the people's fear was overwhelming. They lost their leader, or so they thought. They were in despair. So they gathered together, and they took the jewelry that they had taken out of Egypt, and they melted it down, 
And they built a molten calf, a solid, hard, brilliant, beautiful calf to worship. Now, you don't have to be ordained as a rabbi to figure out why they built it. We know why. People who are afraid do really wild things. They lash out at people who are different. They build walls. They produce more weapons. They build up a trillion-dollar fear industry. They seek blame instead of responsibility, revenge instead of justice. But we also know how this story continues. The Torah tells us what happens. Moshe comes down to the mountain, and in a fit of rage, he sees the calf, and what does he do? He smashes the Ten Commandments. After he and God calm themselves down, they break the people, of course, but after they calm down, another set of Ten Commandments are produced. But what happens to the shattered pieces of those first set of Ten Commandments? What happens when something we value deeply, that we treasure, breaks? What happens when it's someone we trust who breaks it? Midrash, which is the corpus of rabbinic literature that seeks to answer the questions raised by Torah, like what happened to the first set of Ten Commandments, teaches that amidst great rabbinic debate, the people gathered the broken shards of the tablets and they placed them inside the Mishkan, inside the holy tabernacle that they would now build together. And they carried them with them, the broken pieces, alongside the whole new set for the 40 years of their desert sojourn. You see, God decides in these last chapters of Exodus to inspire the people to build a Mishkan, a portable tabernacle. He calls on, God calls on each of them to bring their gifts forward. And so everyone contributes to the building of God's sanctuary. It seems like this works for us, right? We carry inside of our bodies, inside our hearts, in our guts, broken shards as we strive to live whole lives. Jewish tradition teaches us that we must emphasize, empathize, <laughs> emphasize too, empathize with the broken pieces without turning them into false idols that we worship. God and Moses ultimately realized that the impulse to build, to create, is, is real. It's a driving hunger inside people. And that the way through the brokenness and the fear, the shattered pieces of stone that compromise our lives, well, it seems that these stories of Exodus teach us that our task is to try to build something together. It's the choice before us now. While the current administration of our nation would have us build a calf of white supremacy and a wall of xenophobia, we as Shirtikva and as First Universalist are faced with a similar question. In the midst of our fear, what will we build? What are we going to build? The great leader and poet, the activist, thinker, and human rights giant Audre Lorde of blessed memory once said, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. 
to use our strength in service of our vision. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of Great Britain. I just want to hold that sentence for a second. There is a chief rabbi of Great Britain. I told Bruce before that I want to be the chief rabbi of South Minneapolis. Um, (laughs) Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs offers what he says is a resolution or a solution to the golden calf conundrum. He says there's really only one solution, to make the people co-architects of their own destiny, to get them to build something together, to shape them into a team and show them they aren't helpless, that they are responsible and capable of collaborative action. Genesis, the opening of the book of the Torah of the Hebrew Bible, begins with the divine creating the universe as a home for human beings. Exodus, the second book, ends with human beings creating the Mishkan, the holy tabernacle, a home for the divine. To shape us into a team, to show us we are not helpless, that we are responsible, we are capable of collaborative action, we are powerful together. I'm here today uh, in part, not just because I love all of your pastors and because uh, Justin and I schlepped to Israel together a couple of years ago. Um, I'm here also in part because our two congregations, as you know, are seriously doing an unbelievable amount of work as we explore co-location. And it's not, I know you've heard this before, but I'm going to say it again. It's not because either of our congregations are failing or shrinking. We're the two congregations in Minneapolis who are growing and thriving. We're considering this because we have expansive vision. Because we're seeking what it might look like if we build something together. Because we wish to be co-creators, co-collaborators of a neighborhood and a community that dismantles anti-Semitism and white supremacy and racism and collaborates to build a world of mutual respect, trust, justice, and love. Because we dream of a world where we are brave, where we are brave as we confront our internal prejudices, our fears, our longing, and our dreams. A world where we are not helpless, but responsible architects of our own destiny. Because together... Shirtikva and First Unitarian Universalist are looking to privilege compassion over fear, racial justice over structural inequality, hope over cynicism and despair. And we enter those meetings and those emails, those conversations, this hard holy work humbly. We know it is possible it might not work despite all of our best intentions. I hope it does. But it's possible it might not. But the work together of being in holy conversation, of really seeing and listening to each other deeply, I would argue that that must be somehow for the sake of heaven. 14 months ago, in this very sanctuary, I stood here because we held the funeral service for my best friend. Some of you knew her. Her name was Anne Kinner Roth of Blessed Memory. She was one of the leaders in our state and our nation for marriage equality, and she served as the Deputy Secretary of State. 
She died at 49 years old from a brain tumor. And I never knew it was possible to feel so broken and so empty, so spiritually shattered like those tablets. Death always invites reflection and introspection. You know that. I'm not teaching you Torah you don't already know. It's one of death's awe-filled gifts, no matter how unwelcome it may be. What I learned on a cold winter day in December, very similar to a day like today, as I shoveled dirt under the casket of my best friend, was this. We are here for the briefest of moments on this earth. The great poet Mary Oliver of blessed memory who died only a few weeks ago asks each of us the great, humbling, brave question. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? In this sanctuary, as I mourned one of the people I loved most in this world, I found part of my answer. I want to join with other soulful, broken, beautiful, fabulous people and build something with meaning and purpose, something in the words of Hamilton that will outlast me. A structure that houses two great communities, two great communities seeking to transform our souls and transform the world, a home where peoples of different religious traditions can live into their best selves, our best selves, our best visions, and come together to grow each in our own way and do the hard and holy work of facing one another in all of our brilliance and all of our brokenness. And perhaps, perhaps inside this one wild and precious moment we are alive, make something together more holy and more whole than we ever could have alone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.